0: once again to UConn 360. Uh, It's the only podcast in the world that covers the University of Connecticut from every conceivable angle. This is our big episode 47.
1: Why is that big? (laughs) I don't know. It's
0: bigger than 46. They're all big. I'm Tom Breen. I'm your facilitator of sorts. Joining me are my colleagues, Julie Bartuka. Hey. Ken Best. We're here. Uh, Absent today is Maxine Filivong. Boo. But you'll be hearing from her before long, I'm sure. Just got back from Las Vegas, where we were doing a presentation on this very podcast at the American Marketing Association's Higher Ed Conference.
1: It was fantastic. I think
0: it went
2: very well. They followed us all the way to the plane, literally.
1: <laughs> we did. We, had we, people. We, got... we were, like again, like the Beatles. We
0: got recognized uh, twice at the airport mm-hmm. i think at this point it's just churlish to deny that we're bigger than the beatles <laughs> <laughs> it's, sure. it's pretty obvious <laughs> uh, but thanks to everybody who came up and talked to us a lot of great questions from universities in fact around the world
1: yes as far away as israel
0: yeah so uh went really well spreading the good word about yukon 360
1: and we had a lot of fun in vegas
0: well i don't know if we should emphasize that for our listeners oh
1: my gosh it was all good clean fun
0: yeah, well sort of
1: went to the neon museum we
0: did we, nice. we did go to Fremont Street. Though. We also went. Yeah, to Fremont that was Street. not so clean. <laughs> it's not good clean fun. We won't go there. Uh, anyway, we will go to lots of exciting places today. All kinds of corners. All kinds of corners. Uh, and why don't we start with the uh, Husky headlines? See what's happening this Thanksgiving week. Presumably, it's Thanksgiving. I mean, if you're downloading it on the day it comes out, that's Thanksgiving week. Yes. If you listen to it like a week later, it's not. So whatever.
1: Are you tossing to me without words? Wow. I didn't know if you were – I didn't know who I you were to we call on. A, I thought
0: we had developed a rapport, but I guess not.
1: I didn't know we were going to call on. You sometimes switch it up. Well, my news is good. The School of Engineering has once again been recognized as a national leader for fostering diversity and inclusion among its student and faculty population. This is according to a new top 20 universities list released by Woman Engineer Magazine. The list was determined by a survey of the magazine's more than 135,000 women engineering student and professional subscribers. According to the editors, readers based the selection on criteria such as the diversity of the student base and the faculty, the diversity of the curriculum, and the school's ability to foster a diverse and inclusive learning environment. While the engineering industry as a whole has struggled to recruit and retain underrepresented minorities, the school has been recognized quite a bit recently for its work toward gender equity and diversity, There was a Washington Post survey that said UConn was the top public institution for U.S. growth in female engineering undergrads from 2010 to 2015. And there are programs like the Bridge Pre-College Summer Program that have helped build a pipeline of underrepresented minority students into the school.
2: Pretty awesome. Good to hear. Ken, what's going on? Well, we will go to the sports field for this uh, next update. Hall of Fame field hockey coach Nancy Stevens became the first coach to reach the 700-win mark in collegiate field hockey. She already was the all-time wins leader in collegiate field hockey. The win, which was historic for us, of course— Came in a two-one victory over Fairfield in the first round of the NCAA tournament on November fifteenth at Sherman Family Sports Complex here in Storrs. The Huskies qualified for the NCAA's after winning their eighth consecutive Big East championship in the eighteenth overall because uh, we were still playing field hockey and lacrosse in the Big East Conference. Unfortunately, two days later, the number two Huskies ended their season at home when number nine Princeton avenged an earlier season loss in a hard-fought defensive battle uh, won by the Tigers, too. I was there. It was a really good game. And the thing is, this was a very young team. There were only three seniors. Two started. And there were seven freshmen and sophomores. Plus, she's got some more people coming in. And after the game, she said, I think sometimes having won three of the last six national championships, it seems so disappointing not to win a national championship. But I think there are growth periods and programs. And so this was a growth Year for us,
1: they're doing pretty well, and Nancy Stevens rocks.
2: And uh, her assistants, uh, Paul Caddy and Sherry Schultz, with her almost twenty years. So this is this is a good crew that she's got.
0: Yeah, very much. So uh, I mentioned Thanksgiving earlier. We're approaching the holidays. Perhaps uh, you're doing some Black Friday shopping, listening to, the, or some small business Saturday shopping. There you go. Or Cyber Monday, Giving Tuesday. Gambling Wednesday. <laughs> is there a, a day for everything? Set your money on fire. <laughs> Thursday. Uh, Thursday. <laughs> the whole thing. Uh, and if you are, perhaps you're looking for some gifts, some great gifts, maybe some dolls. You oh. know, for some, some younger folks on your, or folks of all ages. It doesn't have to be A Segway
1: King is among yeah. us once again. So
0: speaking of dolls, Julie, just, Speaking you know, of
1: dolls and
2: commercialism. Yep.
1: Do you guys know about American Girl? Yes. Yes. What do you know about American Girl dolls? They're dolls. That's all you know?
2: Pretty much. I know my brother's kids have bunches of them.
1: Which one do you think I had? Do you know any of their names?
0: Jennifer Journalist. Oh,
1: my God. I can't wait. I couldn't wait for that. No, I had Samantha, who was uh, a Victorian-era aristocrat. She was from a very well-to-do family. There was So let me back up before I—
0: We don't have aristocrats in this country, Julie.
1: (sighs) Before I get ahead of myself, the dolls are accompanied by books. They've become kind of a crazy— symbol of commercialism these days. There's a massive store in New York City. um, I think there may be one in Chicago, too, where you can actually have tea with your doll and get your doll's hair done. And there's all different dolls you can buy now. There are ones that can look like you. There are baby dolls. But when this started back in the late 80s by this woman named Pleasant Rowland or Rowland, I'm not entirely sure how to pronounce it, it was kind of a way to teach young girls about history. So there are these different dolls that have... They all come from different backgrounds, some from different countries, different eras of U.S. history, and the books that accompany them tell different stories about their lives. There are two historians who earn their Ph.D.s at UConn that have decided to make a podcast about American Girl. And it's called American Girls. It's very popular. And each episode focuses on one book from the series. They're going through them in chronological order of when the books took place. So not the order that they were released or anything like that. And what they're doing is kind of hard to explain. You should go check it out. They examine the books from a historical lens, but also have this real pop culture awareness. um, And they never lose sight of what the dolls meant to them as children. I had a really fun conversation with them, which we did via the Internet. So it doesn't sound like they're in studio because they're not, but it was great and we talked about their podcast and lots of other things. Take a listen.
3: My name is Allison Horrocks and I completed my PhD in history at UConn in May 2016 and I currently work as a park ranger at Lowell National Historical Park in Lowell, Massachusetts.
4: And I'm Mary Mahoney. I completed my Ph.D. in history at UConn in May of 2018, and I'm now a Mellon Postdoctoral Fellow in Digital Humanities at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut.
1: Very cool. And you both are co-hosts of the American Girls podcast, which is why you're here. When I mentioned to my coworker who was helping me with the phone stuff that I was interviewing you guys, he was like, every time you say that, I think of my daughter's dolls. And I'm like, well, that's what it is. (laughs) So part of the appeal of the podcast is that it's sort of an unexpected topic and approach. How did you come up with this idea?
3: I think part of it comes from the genesis of our friendship, which was we both decided to do this. Sort of non-traditional thing to go and write into our PhDs around the same time. And we were discovering a lot of new kinds of knowledge, a lot of new topics and approaches, but we had this bond over these dolls and these stories that we both loved as children. And it was kind of this nice connective tissue. And I think also served as a signal that we took our work, but not ourselves that seriously.
4: I think not only is it a sign that we take our work, but not ourselves seriously, but also that we're comfortable using pop culture as a language to understand our own experiences in the same way that we think with history in a very similar way. So, um, you know, I think that's been instructive of our friendship at the beginning and of the show we make now.
1: And other than becoming friends at UConn, is there anything else about your time here that kind of informed
4: the way that you do this podcast? Well, I think back to my time at UConn and the fact that I taught the entire time I was there. And I think um, just reflecting back on using pop culture, Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times um, when people enter graduate programs, it's because they've been heavily influenced by research they did as an undergraduate or monographs they read. But often, when students take introductory survey courses, which is mostly what I taught at UConn, um, they're drawn um, not—they have no exposure to that kind of scholarship. They're drawn instead by things in pop culture that engage history that are of interest to them or at least pique their curiosity. So often, I would use things in pop culture that might be common to most of us and use that as an entry point or a way in to think with history in a new and different way, possibly for them. So that's something that I did as a teacher at UConn, and Allison did as well. That is something we use in creating our show now.
1: Yeah, it's such a great blend of kind of current events, pop culture from now and when the books were written, and then the history of what's happening in the books. And it's it's just really cool that, you know, you use something that you and many people, including myself our age, loved as kids, but you're approaching it from your new adult perspective and this historical perspective. So what kind of goals did you guys have when you set out to do this and have they evolved over time?
3: I think we were hopeful that people would listen and that it would resonate with people on some level. Something that helped early on was we both attended a conference in Hartford and meeting other people who loved history, who were listening and felt like they connected with it was great. I think the thing that's really exceeded my expectations is people who maybe loved certain kinds of stories or loved history as kids, but felt like that is something they got a little bit away from, who've now rediscovered that spark as adults. That audience, I think, has been so exciting for us to connect with.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think for myself, I had the most modest goal of making this show as a reward for finishing grad school, (laughs) because we knew that the time involved would not make it a thing that was possible necessarily while we were still finishing our program and I finished a year or two after Allison. So it was just really fun for Allison and I to have this shared time together, have a reason to spend time together every other week recording and like Allison said I think we hoped that people would listen and initially I just hoped it would be some of our friends listening and to <laughs> now have the listeners that we do. It's just It's really stunning in ways that I can't even express. I mean, Allison and I have received letters from people who say, you know, I'm currently being treated for cancer, and I listen to your show while I'm getting my chemo, and it makes me smile. It's like, you know, we record this show in our living rooms in sweatpants, and people (laughs) are taking us with them in these very serious scenes in their lives. So it's a really intimate medium that people have treated as such, and I think that's both gratifying and really humbling. That's
1: amazing. I was going to talk about the community that you guys have kind of built. I looked at all the reviews you guys have gotten on Apple Podcasts and then your Facebook and Instagram communities. And it's both that nostalgia factor that we all are really hyped up on these days, um, especially for us like 90s kids. And then the current topics that you guys get to talk about, like I was just listening to one of the Kirsten episodes about immigration. And there's just so many different things you guys can pull in. And we get to know you a little bit, your funny pop culture asides, and it just becomes this whole
3: community. So what has that been like? It's bonkers. It's, It's actually a lot of fun. We get emails, we get voicemails, we have a Google Drive, where people can share their stories. So we hear from people in every possible medium. And I've said that we feel really fortunate that pretty much every time we click on a blurred image that comes through a private DM, it's a girl with a doll, Aww. which is not something <laughs> a lot of people what have you think. As, as a social media experience. And it, you know, as Mary is saying, we were both really touched this weekend with someone reaching out to us about, you know, listening through treatment, We had a lot of really strong responses to our episode on Josefina and grief. Mm -hmm. And that was honestly really intense because you don't picture people listening to this thing that you make in those moments and finding it helpful. Because for us, it's a conversation that is recorded and edited and put out there. And we consume a lot of podcasts, but you don't actually know how people are reacting. And people take time to then write you a five-paragraph email. And that is so as Mary said.
1: What are some of the most valuable lessons you've discovered in the books as you've revisited them as adults? We know we don't want to make apple butter. We know that.
4: <laughs> we know that's beyond us.
3: We do know that's beyond us. Yeah, it's taught us about our limits. For sure. We talk about, you know, who is and who is not a good friend or who gets to be seen and valued as a friend in the book. A thing I keep coming back to is both in some ways the lack of action in Josefina's stories and on another level, the fact that she's just this deeply empathetic little girl who comes from a background where there's not a lot of stories about young girls from the borderlands in the 1820s. And there's 300 pages worth of content about her feelings. We had some challenges with those books because there aren't a ton of historical events. But there's something really provocative about that, you know, that girls all over the country are delving that deeply into her story.
4: Right. And I I think something that we value too, and that the books kind of highlight is the importance of taking yourself seriously and the idea of creating yourself and constantly evolving and you know, as Allison was saying, in the Josefina books, there's not a lot of historical events that we could delve into. But, uh, you know, she is moving through really serious grief of the loss of a parent. She's trying to figure out how she, who she is and how she fits in her family and what things she's interested in. And Margaret Lyons wrote in her piece about our show, I think something that's important about the books and hopefully about the way that we talk about them is that it takes seriously the idea that Both the girls in these books are creating themselves, but also the adults now rereading them as adults. You know, we can still take that idea seriously. We're not done. It's not just like when you're a girl, you get to think about what you want to be when you grow up. When you're actually already grown up, that process is still happening. So you can keep creating and recreating yourself and evolving. It's not something to apologize for. It's something to embrace. And I think the books have let our listeners do that in really interesting ways.
1: You mentioned the New York Times
4: piece. Did you ever think you would be
1: in New York Times for something like this?
3: I never thought that I would be featured in newspapers with a photo of me holding my doll with her hat on backwards. I did not think that would be it. I think it's better than being featured in other parts of the newspaper, but
4: no. The crime report? Is that where you (laughs) thought you saw yourself? Um, Yeah, it's a shock, but both of us still can't believe it. I mean, it's kind of beyond my own conception of what this show would ever do or be. Um, I never thought I would be in the New York Times ever in my life. Well, congratulations.
1: And it's very cool that you have this Yukon connection because we can, you know, lay a little claim on you and um, that you broke through the clutter of podcasts and have this one that's actually
3: resonating with people. So well done. You no, know, I think we should have like a subline somewhere that thanks the red line, because maybe if it had functioned better, we would have talked less on our long walks and rides to our car. <laughs> 'Cause I think I think if you knew us then the show is basically like the way that we talk mm-hmm. together. So I feel like the red line and those kinds of times started the formula for this. Thank we you walked to
4: in UConn from buses. W-Lot. Thank you to UConn buses for not showing up often and we would walk <laughs> in from W lot together and have conversations that basically prepared us to host this show.
1: There is a slightly longer version of this conversation that should be on a future WHUS version of the podcast and I believe on UConn Today sometime soon. And Allison and Mary talk about how they most identify with the doll Molly. And this conversation includes the choice, quote, I don't wear saddle shoes almost every day for nothing. You can find the podcast wherever you get your podcasts and join their community on Instagram at American Girls Podcast. On Twitter at A Girls Pod and Facebook.com slash American Girls Podcast.
2: Very nice. So, do they use Tom Petty or Melissa Etheridge as the theme?
1: I don't think either. Both have
2: American Girl. I do
1: love that Tom Petty song.
2: It's a great song. (laughs) Ken? Well, we have a bit of a more serious subject uh, to discuss right now. Uh, One of the. Ongoing critical social and public policy issues is child neglect. Uh, Eighty percent of child fatalities can be attributed to maltreatment. And just three years ago in 2016, child protective service agencies in the United States received 4.1 million referrals involving approximately 7.4 million children, which was uh, a year-over-year increases. In child maltreatment referrals, uh, two UConn professors in different disciplines recently published a paper titled "Heed Neglect: Disrupt Child Maltreatment: A Call to Action for Researchers." That was published in the International Journal on Child Maltreatment Research, Policy, and Practice. Uh, public Policy Professor Kerry Racia and Social Work Policy Professor Megan Feely collaborated on the paper with their colleagues Lindsay Bullinger of Georgia Tech, who is in Public Policy, and William Schneider from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, who is in social work. All four of the scholars are Doris Duke fellows for the promotion of child well-being. They were all in that program, which is how they met and decided to collaborate. Their paper notes that the traditional prevention strategies and the supporting research have proven less effective at preventing neglect, and they recommend exploring factors in family circumstances that can influence a parent's ability to consistently provide safe and sufficient environments for their children. Uh, we spoke with Professors Racian and Fili at their Hartford campus about this issue, and Professor Raycion begins the discussion with a description of the issue.
5: Every year, there are 4.1 million referrals to child protective services, which involve about 7.4 million children. Those numbers are primarily driven by neglect. Other forms of child maltreatment, physical abuse, sexual abuse, are declining. We're doing really good work there, but neglect remains intractable. And the question that our research team considered is, why does neglect remain intractable? And what can we do to get it on the decline in a way that we're seeing improvements with other forms of child abuse? Our basic thought as a research team is, is that we don't know what causes neglect. And without knowing what causes neglect, it's really hard to design policy and programs that are going to make a difference in families' lives and reduce this problem.
2: That's a public policy pers- perspective from a public policy expert. But we also have, Professor Sheley, a social worker. You deal with the consequences of child neglect.
6: Yes. And the consequences of child neglect are very similar to the consequences of other types of maltreatment. Um, We don't see significant differences in child outcomes by type of maltreatment, um, but we are more effective as a system at dealing with physical abuse and sexual abuse, educational neglect, things that are more specific and narrowly defined. And What our paper focuses on is sort of looking outside of what we consider like the traditional child welfare practices and policies into some other areas that the research is building that have a strong influence on families' ability to to provide safe and consistent care for their children. And that's really what neglect, most neglect, is a sort of a gap in safe and consistent care and basic provision of services. By looking at some of these other systems, we start to see how we are failing families and not able to fully support them and their ability to care for their children. And that may be a more effective approach than our traditional child welfare-focused interventions.
2: One of the major things that you point out in the study is that there are other factors that you think people should look at in terms of the causes of child neglect, economic, environmental, and all the things that cause stress in people's lives that result in bad treatment of children.
5: When Child Protective Services gets a call concerning a kid and its welfare, what do they do? They go to the family and they look at the family and they try to fix the family. What we're saying is There's a lot of stuff that happens before we get to the family, and what we need to do is look beyond the family, right? We call this phenomenon the streetlight effect. We look at the family because we see the family, we have access to the family, and we go try to fix the family. While we think families need services, and we certainly don't want to ignore families in this approach – What we do wanna do is say, what's happening before we even get to the family? And we have theories from social work and, and many other disciplines that tell us families exist in society and in context. We think there's a lot of work we can do to make families' jobs a lot easier. For example, we can look at increasing the minimum wage, a step that Connecticut has recently taken, which will hopefully help families that are struggling with economic hardship so that it's easier to parent. I find it a lot easier to parent when I can pay my bills versus when I can't pay my bills. We have research looking at the Earned Income Tax Credit, or EITC. And we see that when we increase income through that channel, parents do better at parenting. We have a host of things and policies that influence all of us, families included. And what we're saying in this paper is if we want to make parents' jobs easier, then we can do that through policy, and that in turn will make kids better off.
2: From the social work perspective, how is that going to play out once this might be recognized and public policy is in place?
6: Social work really looks at the person in environment as sort of a central theory of our work, and but we often kind of ignore how those contextual factors may um, facilitate or impede families actual functioning within the family. So it should, and we have research sort of pointing to this that as we make the policy context more supportive of families, that within sort of that like nested system where families are living in communities and society, it makes it easier and they they will change, their behaviors will change in response to changes in the environment. And that one of those changes is, as Carrie said, it is easier to care for your children when the environment that you're living in is more supportive and less stressful and requires less effort just to navigate, get your basic needs met.
5: And for what it's worth, When we think about making kids safe in other contexts, we look beyond the context. We use the example of motor vehicle deaths among kids, a leading killer of children. And we didn't just look at cars or people who had bad driving records we fixed the driving environment we put speed limits in place we made our roads safer we put safety belts in cars we said kids need to be in a certain kind of child seat um, or harness etc depending on their age and weight limit and thought about all these ways that we could make the driving environment safer thereby making kids in cars safer and reducing motor vehicle deaths and injury and guess what worked. One of the top 10 public health interventions in our our lifetime. We need to do that with child maltreatment. We need to think about how do we make the environment better for families so that they can better care for their kids.
2: This has now been identified as a strategy that could be used to take this to the next level. But more study is required. Where should this next research head?
5: I think there are lots of strategies and opportunities for child protective services to partner with other social service agencies. This paper is saying the context matters, and there are policies and institutions that have roles in making families' lives better. The Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP, there are drug and alcohol addiction recovery programs. Uh, There's mental health. Lots of agencies in Connecticut and in other states exist to try to help both people and families But often what we see are Child Protective Service agencies and those other agencies working together but not really integrating their services. And what we want to see is all of those services talking about child well-being. Housing talks about not just getting families housing, but also getting families housing and making kids safer. And we want to hear Child Protective Services having a similar conversation so that at the focus of all of these agencies, are child well being and creating a protective environment for kids um, and their families to reduce child maltreatment.
6: In addition to sort of the practical on the ground changes, is um, increasing sort of the measurement of child neglect in other types of research. So instead of siloing child maltreatment research kind of in its own category, thinking about when we're looking at housing research, can we bring in a measurement of neglect and child maltreatment so that it starts to become part of the general conversation around these policies. What are the positive externalities of pro-family supportive policies? Reducing maltreatment is one of those things, but we don't necessarily have the research consistently across different types of policies to support that contention. So not only like increasing the interaction on the ground of like housing people talking about maltreatment and vice versa, but also from a research standpoint that the measurement of child maltreatment is integral to other types of social science research.
2: Continuing to work on this issue uh, with their colleagues, there will be other studies, and then they hope to get this idea into practice around the country.
0: When I worked for the Associated Press, I uh, uh, worked on a project where we um, got the records of all the child fatalities in the state of North Carolina for five years, and we went through them um, looking for signs of neglect and things like that. And uh, it was the only project I worked
2: on as a journalist that gave me
0: nightmares.
1: Oh, yeah. that's terrible. I'm glad we're doing something about it
2: yes, here at UConn. Yes, it's an important story. Well, the important thing is that it's public policy and social work, which is the only way you can solve this issue. Right, work hand in hand. It's it's got to get into the homes, and there has to have to be laws.
0: This week, uh, Tom's History Corner has kind of an international flavor. We're going to learn about some history at UConn, but we're also going to learn about some history further afield. I was recently looking through the archives of the New York Times, as one does, and I came <laughs> upon this story... Uh, Dateline Stores, Connecticut, June 10th, 1911. I'm going to read this story. The uh, headline is, Takes Frogs Back to Japan. Kamau Inanya, a Japanese student who has just received his diploma from the Connecticut Agricultural College here, is on his way back to Japan today, carrying with him carefully crated a dozen of the largest and best specimens of bullfrogs he has been able to gather from the ponds in the surrounding country. It is his intention to use them in the propagation of the species in Japan, where, hmm. the, where the frogs are all small and not edible. So when I saw this, I thought, was this, was this our first international student? 1911? Maybe. And I also thought they probably got his name wrong because Ananya does not sound like a Japanese name at all. My hunch is that it was Inoye, like the senator from Hawaii. So I started doing some research on that. And yes, indeed, his name was Kamau Inoye. Hmm. So the New York Times misspelled his first name and last name. Even, good job, Tom. Even then, fake news from the failing New York Times. Um, <laughs> Stop. <laughs> and uh, I found some references to him in the Lookout, which was the predecessor of the Daily Campus. Um, it was a monthly sort of newspaper. So he, when he came to visit here, for example, he brought us gifts of grapes, like a grape, you know, uh, plants, hmm. which is a good Connecticut gift, right? Quetrenstulat sustenant and all that. Right. And he also brought two Japanese maple trees.
1: Oh, I love those.
0: Now, I don't know if this is one of the ones he brought, but there is still a Japanese maple tree in front of the Buds building.
1: Can we find out?
0: We probably can not find out. I bet out.
1: it's in that tree guide I have on my desk.
0: Probably is. But it's a beautiful tree. You should go see it. It has a plaque on it, so you know it's yeah, a it's Japanese Yeah, it's probably in tree. my tree guide then. He also uh, um, did a uh, hybrid carnation flower that was very popular, wow. a dark red carnation. Uh, He's a popular student, apparently, and when he left, when he graduated, this is what the Uh, Lookout wrote about him. He actually was supposed to graduate in 1912, but he was conscripted to serve in the Japanese army. So they gave him his diploma anyway. So they say that and they say, Mr. Noye recently paid a brief visit back to Connecticut and upon his return to Japan took with him six head of registered stock representing the leading dairy breeds, cows, one pair of English bulldogs, some turkeys and some pigeons. Being advised to purchase his cattle in the middle or western states, thus saving trouble and expensive transportation across the continent, Mr. Noye replied, but I wish them to come from Connecticut. This reply indicates a feeling of loyalty to our state and college, which should be an inspiration to all connected. These
1: are all live animals, right? Yes, Okay, good.
6: Thank you. Uh,
0: It is not difficult to imagine the scene when Mr. Noye arrives in Japan with his happy family. One wonders if the bullfrogs, which he took to Japan from the little pond and stores last year, will recover from their homesickness and welcome the travelers from Connecticut. (laughs) (laughs) That's cool. Um,
2: I have a question. Did they go across the country in trains, or did they go through the... Panama Canal. I'm guessing they
0: probably went through the Panama Canal. Um, I was really excited about this because I'm uh, planning on going to Japan later this year. Yes. And I thought, well, I'll, you know, I'm going to find Connecticut something
1: Bullfrogs. connected
0: with, with uh, Kamao Noye. Uh, he later on uh, found they actually had his street address in Japan published in a... Uh,
1: <laughs> so he could mail him letters? Or? I guess. Are you going to go? Uh, take a picture? Uh,
0: he lived in a place called Yodabashi in Tokyo. Which, upon some further research, uh, after World War II was merged with two other districts to form Shinjuku Ward, which is like, I don't know, Shinjuku Ward is probably the heart of the city. It has the world's busiest train station with yeah. two million passengers a day. You know the hotel in Lost in Translation? Yeah. That's in Shinjuku. So it's all okay. like skyscrapers. So there's probably not many so, farmers. Yeah,
1: no. His, his place probably not there anymore. But there
0: is a business called Kotabashi Cameras, which wow. preserves the old name. So, I was going to go get my picture taken, maybe with a little carnation in my lapel, you know?
1: Snazzy. <laughs> to, to pay
0: tribute to the, uh, the first international student. By the way, I also did some research on the bullfrog question. Yes. And um, as you may have guessed, uh, bullfrogs are one of the most destructive invasive species. <laughs> oh, no. In Japan, the Japanese government has been trying without success to eradicate them for about 100 uh,
1: years. Is it his fault?
0: Well, so the Japanese government website that talks about this says that the bullfrog was introduced, the North American bullfrog was introduced in 1918 from New Orleans. Oh. So I think that might let our guy off the hook.
1: But he did it before that.
0: Well, possibly they died in transit. Yeah, that's very I mean, that's very stores possible, to Tokyo sir. in yeah. 1911 was long. What I like to think happened, though, what I like to think happened is that the Yukon bullfrogs were polite and respectful, <laughs> and did not compete with native species because they were guests. And it was only when they imported the rowdy and raucous bullfrogs from, from New Orleans, from obviously. Louisiana, yep, you know how they are down there, Louisiana. I've been to Bourbon Street; I know what goes on. <laughs> uh,
1: <laughs> they were like the um, Michigan J Frog. <laughs> yeah.
0: So I was I was really excited. They bring beignet with them. Yes. I was really excited until uh, until I did some more research. Oh no. Yeah, and. Uh, It turns out uh, Kamau Noye was not the first international student at UConn.
1: I was going to ask you if we ever confirmed that. So, okay. In
0: 1910, there was a graduate of Thomas Konstantinov from Bulgaria. Mm. And he had a brief bio published in The Lookout that year saying, Tommy was born in Bulgaria in 1880, came to the United States in 1907, and entered Connecticut as a junior in the fall of 08. He expects to return to Europe this summer, will probably make a study of the dairy industry in Holland, and in about a year return to Bulgaria. Tommy delights in arguing, is a great philosopher, a socialist, and a pessimist. Tommy became quite intimate with a short course girl in the winter because he said, she speaks my language. He won the first bacteriology prize, dairy course, and he did not allow them to take his picture for the yearbook.
2: Okay. <laughs> okay, so he, he likes to argue and he...
1: Picked up a chick.
0: <laughs> so I thought, okay, all right. But then...
1: Oh my gosh. Did
0: some more research. 1909. Wow. 1909. A uh, graduate one, Abelardo Pachano from Ecuador. There is a picture of him, and I'll post this on the um, old main Twitter account, which is at Maine underscore old. It's a great picture. He looks, you know, the classic Edwardian college student with a high stiff collar and all that. This is what it says about uh, Abelardo Pachano. Having learned all that Ecuador could teach him. Pachano came to the United States and landed at stores in September 07. This bright-faced young man, being of a wandering disposition, rooms part of the time in the new dorm and part of the time in Stores Hall. He is an expert fencer, and when it comes to arguing, carajo. I'm not going to translate that because that's like a legitimate swear word in Spanish.
1: <laughs>
0: blue language in the lookout. So do, do
2: we have to put a beep on that for those
0: yeah, I, folks who what understand kind of the language?
1: What kind of swear word?
0: Uh, it's like... So it's a, like when it comes to arguing, holy sugar, honey, oh, iced tea. Gotcha. But uh, I don't have a talk with the lookout editors. That's yeah, not. You're
1: going to have a talk with yeah. them. Good luck through well, your medium. What, what
0: would President Taft <laughs> at say? At the
1: Depot campus? There's no
0: way to represent Storrs Agricultural College. So. Anyway.
1: This is fascinating. The people, how did they end up here?
0: Expects to study two more years in the United States, return to Ecuador, says he is too young to love and too old to marry.
1: They were really focused on people's love lives in the lookout.
0: He also won the first prize in bacteriology. <laughs> um, so
1: wasn't probably wasn't much was else living, to study here then, and he
2: was switching <laughs> dorms
0: splitting everything. his time yeah.
1: to really. I've,
2: Is I've, that I've, why he was studying bacteriology? Who knows?
0: <laughs> maybe. Who knows? Well, you know, he's too young to love, so he's probably healthy.
1: Oh my gosh, um, that's cool.
0: So, and then I found this uh, thing called the catalog that the, the university would produce for state government, and I found the 1916 edition. And one thing they included in this was an um, appendix listing everyone who would ever graduated, where they were living then and what they were doing for a living. And there weren't that – I mean you know some of those early classes were like six people. Mm -hmm. So uh, Kamao Noye is in there. He's listed as a farmer living in Tokyo. Thomas Konstantinov is listed as a teacher living in Bulgaria. Mm -hmm. And uh, Abelardo Pachano is listed as a teacher living in Ecuador. And going back before that all the way back to 1883, I am convinced that Abelardo Pachano was our first international student. Um, everyone else has a super-duper Yankee name, pretty I much. I believe you. Uh, I couldn't find anything about what happened to him afterwards. However, there is uh, a well-known economist and a central banker in Ecuador named Abelardo Pachano, who is from the same city, born in 1946, so maybe a grandson cool.
2: of our Abelardo Pachano. We I like need it. a full... Yukon 360 investigation into these things. <laughs> I
0: know. Yeah, they should send us to Ecuador. Yes,
1: let's do it. Yeah. Let's go interview him. Well, That's while, really
2: neat. While you're in Japan, you can maybe check out. Yeah, s- survivors.
0: I. You know what? I want to. I mean, I do want to pay tribute to Kamao Noye, who was. Uh, you know, he,
1: probably he, our first Japanese student. Definitely at least. our
0: fast, our first international student from the continent of Asia. That's you know, he he gave us the gift of trees, and he took. Yeah, know, polite he sounds frogs. like a
1: real a real stand up guy. He,
0: he had a chance to get cattle from the west coast, but he was like, no. I, I don't want California trash cattle. <laughs> I want the cream of the cow crop. Give me those Connecticut cows.
2: Well, maybe our Asian American Cultural Center friends might have some information. About yeah, maybe. About previous students.
1: That was a good one. Yeah. We, we really covered all the bases.
0: We really have. Uh, and if, if you like what you hear, why don't you just go ahead and download and rate and subscribe and review. Please. Follow us on Twitter at UConn Podcasts or at Maine underscore old,
2: Julie.
1: I'm at Julie Bartuka, and have a happy Thanksgiving.
2: Ken. I'm on UConn today, and you'll see a full story about this study at UConn today. At some point, I don't know when, but it'll be there. Yeah. Want it, Mr. Breen?
0: Yes, absolutely. I'm also going to do a story on uh, our first international student.
1: You totally should.
0: Yeah. All right, everybody. Happy Thanksgiving or Black Friday or Small Business Saturday or whatever.